0: Hello and welcome to Stronger Than Reason, and I'm more excited than usual because today, for the first time, I'm trying out a new improved microphone. Hopefully you can tell the difference. Uh, If it wasn't obvious, I started this show knowing very little about what the hell I was doing, but I think my production values have slowly crept up over time. It's pretty obvious if you go back and look at the first video where you can barely hear me, And now, after 20-plus hours of me babbling, I think I've arrived at a whole new level. Hopefully. Anyway, today I'm going to talk about a unique work of art that just barely fits into the scope of this show time-wise, which, as you know, concerns itself with only the best 80s and 90s industrial, electronic, and alternative music. This is a triple album that was released in 1999, so it was just at the cusp of the millennium, when all music turned to crap boy bands and Britney Spears. Uh, In my mind, it was more or less the last gasp of alternative as I knew it before the term would be co-opted by the likes of Radiohead and Coldplay. I think this album fits squarely into the traditional definition of alternative. It was released on Merge Records, an indie label out of North Carolina, and it features a guy singing in a baritone and playing the ukulele, Uh, The instrumentation here ranges from traditional rock instruments to things like finger cymbals, strings, flutes, accordions, cellos, old Yamaha and Casio keyboards, and so on and on. So it's somewhat of an outsider listen. I've heard it described as lo-fi and that also generally fits. I think every song is a gem but they often sound casually thrown together with whatever instruments and players happen to be on hand. And I doubt that was really the case, but that's the impression that the songs convey to me. And I realize that this album is the opposite of this show's bread and butter, which tends to be bombastic and exquisitely produced electronic music. Um, But on this album, almost all the songs are clever and introspective and emotive and witty, so really very different. Um, They're played in an understated but enthusiastic way with a very wide palette of sounds and textures, but again, done in such an apparently offhand way that it's a real inspiration to anyone who's ever thought about creating a song. It just makes so much seem possible just listening to this. And by the way, creating a song is something that anyone can do. Uh, And it should be on everyone's bucket list along with writing a novel. It's really just a mechanical process. And I'm not saying that you'll write a great song or a great novel, but you can do it. You know, there was a time before I did those things and I did those things to no great acclaim. And at least I know in my own mind that I did it. Anyway, this record proves it's possible, though, to get devastating results with just a voice or just a voice in a ukulele. Or just a voice and finger snaps, you know, provided, of course, that you have lyrical and songwriting talent on par with the man who wrote these songs. Now, I don't know you. We haven't met, but it's safe to say you don't have that kind of talent. You know, unless you're Leonard Cohen or Bob Dylan or John Prine or Cole Porter, I can guarantee you aren't writing songs on this level. And of course, I'm talking about Stephen Merritt that's Steven with an I, and Merritt with two R's and two T's, in case you're taking notes. And of course, the album is 69 Love Songs by his primary band, The Magnetic Fields. So, I had never heard of The Magnetic Fields growing up, mostly because they didn't even exist until I was an adult. Uh, But I was even older than that. I was 27 or so when I stumbled upon 69 love songs in a used CD bin and I had no idea what it was but I picked it up all three discs which you see here why did I do that well it sounds nuts uh, but I was first attracted by this typewriter font that they used on the the back of the packaging and on the spine Um, that minimalistic DIY aesthetic Uh, it was like the band announcing with a bullhorn that they were independent And it tells you, here's a band who's in it for the music, not for the flashy style. And it's kind of the same reason that I picked up the Whitey album by Chikoni Youth. And for those who don't know, this is a collaboration between Sonic Youth and Mike Watt. They covered some Madonna tunes, among some other things. And it's more of a curiosity uh, than a work of genius. But, you know, that really gets into another episode, but it has a similar sort of package that appealed to me. This just sort of, we're gonna type the, the stuff out with a typewriter and just show you that. And that's the, that's the cover. So similar aesthetic. Uh, the next thing I noticed was the title to which I responded, nice. And I realized that it was really literally just that, a collection of 69 love songs spread out on three discs, 23 songs per disc. And if there was any question as to whether I should get it, it was settled when I saw that one of the songs was called Underwear. (laughs) And any album called 69 Love Songs that had a song called Underwear was worth owning, period, end of story, whatever it sounded like. Just buy this thing. So it was pretty impressive right off the bat. Uh, I don't remember the exact first time I listened. It might have been On the Ride Home. I bought this album a few hours away from my house, so there was definitely a long drive back. And, you know, I'm normally used to my music giving me a big endorphin rush from the instrumentation itself. You know, aggressive beats, shouted vocals, groovy bass, funky stuff, and so on. But the music here was way more understated, and it wasn't even primarily electronic. Some of it was even folkish, or, God, I hate to say it, it was almost singer songwritery which I'm normally allergic to, uh, but ultimately I was surprised and delighted, mostly at the sheer scope of this material and the wide variety of styles that were on this album. Uh, in this respect, I have to say that there was a precedent in my own collection for this kind of music, and the Magnetic Field's first reminded me of another band I had listened to while growing up, which was They Might Be Giants. Now, my sister introduced me to the Giants when she was in college and I was in high school. And of course, being a little older, she was a bit more worldly than I was. But we were both fascinated by their ability to make these quirky and super tight pop gems and to cram like 20 songs into a single album. So listening to a They Might Be Giants album was sometimes bewildering or overwhelming, just the sheer number of styles and all the crazy juxtapositions. 69 Love Songs share some of those qualities, but the difference is that TMBG is often humorous or whimsical in an absurd way. And Stephen Merritt is witty, but he's more intellectual. He's never going for absurd humor and non-sequiturs. So it's kind of the difference between Mark Twain and Stephen Wright. Uh, As an aside, I thought hard about whether I would ever do a show about They Might Be Giants, and I'm kind of still on the fence about that. The thing is, I did listen to them a lot in the past, but not at all lately. I probably haven't listened to them at all in the last 15 years, so I'm not sure I'd have much interest in talking about them. But when I was into them, I was really into them. Uh, I saw them live a bunch of times, I have all of their albums, at least up through Apollo 13. Uh, It's just that I seem to have lost my taste for deliberately whimsical or wacky music. Um, And I guess unless the music itself packs a punch, like, say, the Revolting Cox, which can be wacky, or the Orb, which can be wacky. But they might be giants generally don't pack a punch in the same way. Uh, At least they don't do much for my reptile brain, they're only catering to my monkey brain. And maybe that's not always enough for me, but I don't know. Maybe I'll talk about them at some point. They're really talented anyway, but I'm supposed to be talking about 69 Love Songs here. And I I do remember being happily surprised by the album. I didn't know what I expected, but it was a great thing to hear. It was clearly, clearly a tour de force of songwriting, especially lyrically. And I remember After listening through it a few times, I asked my then-girlfriend and now-wife if she'd sit down and listen to some of these songs with me, and I handed her the lyric book to follow along, and I still think the best way to consume Stephen Merritt's music is with the lyric booklet in hand. I find that there's a lot of pleasure to be had from even the words alone, even as poetry, just reading it, which I can't say for most musical acts. Uh, The humor that he throws in there is really wry, it's sarcastic, it's kind of dark, and that appeals to me. So when he delivers the lyrics in his bassy kind of deadpan way, it becomes (laughs) especially biting. Uh, I know that Stephen Merritt's been described as the most depressed man in rock, and I don't know that that's really true, but it's definitely his persona. He's kind of like this this grumpy unhappy person you know he <laughs> comes across that way i also saw someone say this guy never smiles he must be brilliant <laughs> which i think sums him up pretty well um i think the word i'm looking for is curmudgeon he's a bit of a curmudgeon uh but in fact i can't think of any other band in my collection where the lyrics matter so much maybe The mid-60s Beatles, like the Revolver era, you know, prior to them exploring what uh, John Lennon described as the Bob Dylan word salad approach. So John would use that to great effect in later songs like I Am the Walrus and Glass Onion, just throwing a bunch of images out there. Uh, Merit songs are more like the Beatles' earlier songs that told a story or had a definite situation or otherwise had some more concrete meaning. So Merritt writes concrete lyrics without a lot of abstractions, always told from a specific perspective, almost always first person. And the songs on 69 Love Songs almost always convey a personal experience of some kind, like delight, frustration, appreciation of beauty or anger, loneliness, a want or a need of some kind. So with few exceptions, it's all personal. So as a listener, there's a lot here that you can latch on to. So Merritt has flatly stated that this album is not really about love at all. Um, It's actually about love songs, which is a completely different topic. Uh, In other words, he was motivated (coughs) from wanting to write a review Of various kinds of love love songs and I think he originally imagined this being done in a like a drag show like having a bunch of guest vocalists come up and sing these over-the-top songs so he was originally shooting for a hundred but it seemed like too much even for him and the next lowest number that had any kind of resonance with him was 69 for better or worse And he figured a triple album would be the most that anyone, even an enthusiast, would really want to digest. Plus, 69 was just cheeky in its own way and might garner some attention. So his plan became to make three albums of 23 songs each, spanning all known modes of love songs in various styles. Like, you know, Torch songs, your call-and-response duets, your country-western ballads, your Irish ballads, your singer-songwriter acoustic guitar numbers, your overproduced show tunes synth pop, punk rock, etc., uh, and many others, right? But more often than not, I find that these songs here fall really into no specific genre or style because Merritt can't help but express his own unique thing. And as I said before, these songs wind up sounding like lo-fi, extremely sarcastic, they might be giants, with lyrics that are really, really clever. Um, and The Magnetic Fields is a band, can't help but sound like themselves and almost no one else except for the few cases where they're expressly aping another band or style which does happen a few times here uh for instance one of the songs is in the style of 70s Fleetwood Mac another band that I love we'll talk about that song later um unfortunately my used edition of 69 love songs didn't come with the extensive booklet that it normally comes with I didn't get the booklet um In that booklet, Daniel Handler interviews Stephen Merritt about each of the 69 love songs. And you may know Daniel Handler is the guy who wrote the Lemony Snicket book series. Well, he also plays accordion on some of these songs, because why not? Anyway, the booklet gets into some extensive details about each of the tunes and what the inspirations were and so on. And I'm not going to go over all of that here. I'm certainly not going to go through each and every one of these songs. But if that kind of detail interests you, suffice to say, you can check it out online. I know it happens to be posted on Discogs, but that raises another point. Who are the Magnetic Fields? As a band, they're more than just Stephen Merritt, though he is the only songwriter on this album. Um, The core band is four main instrumentalists with a variety of guests. So they are Stephen Merritt, of course, playing ukulele and many, many other things and providing main vocals. Claudia Gonson is Stephen's chief partner in arranging. She also sings, plays piano and does a lot of other things. I think they all do a lot of other things. Sam Deval plays cello and John Woo plays guitar. Uh, on this album, they had a lot of guest singers, including Shirley Sims. Uh, who sounds, in my mind, quite a lot like Claudia Gonson, but maybe with a little bit more of a Southern thing going on. (laughs) And they also have other vocalists on this particular album, like L.D. Betel and Dudley Clute, who sound, in my opinion, quite a bit like Stephen Merritt, though their voices aren't quite as deep. So all of that makes me kind of wonder why so many vocalists were needed for this. But what the hell do I know? know? I'm not the genius here. But this record came out in 1999 when Stephen was based in New York, though the band had its start in Boston. And there's a great documentary about them that you can check out called Strange Powers, which I heartily recommend. And in it, Claudia describes how she and Stephen used to hang out in Cambridge Square as teenagers. And having just recently visited Cambridge Square, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, Stephen is a prolific songwriter he actually has a bunch of bands uh each with a different style or mission so of course he has the magnetic fields he also has the gothic archies which is his goth rock band and the gothic archies is just a great pun it's a great name uh they did a a couple of albums including one for daniel handlers a series of unfortunate events uh the sixths is his other band And it's a favorite of mine since the band name and album names are deliberate tongue twisters. So their first album was Wasp's Nests. And this album came out on the very short-lived successor to Factory Records, one of my favorites, which was called Factory 2. That's T-O-O. That's where I first noticed that record. Uh, Their second album was called Hyacinths and Thistles. Let me try that again. Hyacinths and Thistles. There we go. So the idea of this band was for Merritt to write songs and have other people sing them. So reportedly he started this project, The Sixths, by noting that no one had ever made a tribute album of his music. So he decided to make his own tribute album of his own music by writing new music and asking other people to sing them. Uh, Anyway, that's The Sixths. And he also has The Future Bible Heroes uh, with Claudia Gonson and Christopher Ewan. And they do more electronic pop kind of stuff. So apart from The Magnetic Fields, that is my favorite of the bunch. The Future Bible Heroes. Obviously, you know, I gravitate toward electronic pop and rock anyway. So marrying that sound with Merritt's songwriting is just an obvious winner. And I have their first two albums, Memories of Love and Eternal Youth. Both of which are amazing. Uh, every song on Memories of Love is a winner, but I especially love the kickoff track, which is Lonely Days. It's a real earworm, and it has this nice, big, lazy beat with lush production that just sort of reminds me of like late summer. It has this very like late summer feel to it. And also notable from that album is Hopeless, which blends really upbeat music with really, really dark lyrics. <laughs> so- an interesting track. Um, the album "Eternal Youth" from few, Future Bible Heroes is also just great. Check out the song "Losing Your Affection." Just an excellent song. I could go on and on about the Future Bible Heroes, but I'm supposed to be talking about '69 love songs. So let's do that. Um, as I said, the album comes in three volumes, each with 23 songs and runtimes. Uh, the runtime is just short of one hour on each of these discs so the songs seem to be distributed uh, more or less randomly so the discs aren't themed in any way Uh, most of the songs are under three minutes two of the songs top out at five minutes so there's the down tempo one uh, papa was a rodeo and then there's sweet love and man which is very lush and exuberant. Uh, Both of those songs are five minutes. They're the longest songs here. And only one other song beats the four-minute mark, which is the brilliant I Don't Believe in the Sun, uh, which I think perfectly showcases Merritt's very maudlin baritone and very wry lyrics. So the idea of this song is that the singer suffered a really bad breakup, so is in permanent darkness. So he no longer recognizes the light of the sun or the moon that's how extreme it is and the best line of the song is the parting shot in my opinion and i'm quoting here the moon to whom the poet's croon has given up and died astronomy will have to be revised (laughs) that's just excellent uh all of the other 66 songs are less than four minutes long so none of them really overstay their welcome but Yeah, let's talk about some more of the songs. If this album has a runaway hit, it's probably The Book of Love, which is probably most famous for having been covered by Peter Gabriel, who in the documentary Strange Powers describes Merritt as a genius. Gabriel's cover appeared in the 1996 film Shall We Dance, as well as in South Park as the love theme for Tweak and Craig, And in the TV show Scrubs. And it was also covered by at least a half a dozen other artists. So yeah, it became pretty popular. And the lyrics are a very typical juxtaposition of very irreverent and very heartfelt. And it's a very simple song. I think it's just three chords. And it's just Merritt's voice and his ukulele. But extremely powerful song nonetheless. Check it out. That's The Book of Love. Uh, Another favorite in this vein is All My Little Words, which perfectly captures that feeling that I'm sure we all had at one point or another in our lives of helplessly watching someone we love leave us. And of course, this song also has an irreverent line or two in the chorus, you know, in lesser hands that would kind of risk breaking the fourth wall, sort of becoming like, a wink or a nod to the listener and ruining the mood of the song, which otherwise is really serious, right? But it doesn't do that at all. Uh, It all just works together really well. And I have to say this song has my vote, at least, for being maybe the saddest song I've ever heard. And I can rarely listen to it without it, it stirring something in me. You know, if I'm really listening to it and concentrating on what the singer is saying and the way they're saying it, and the music and everything, you realize this guy's really at the end of his rope. And it's a song that moves me. I mean, even to the point sometimes where it can choke me up a bit. And I can admit that. I mean, to be clear, I am not emo at all, obviously, because I've made it really clear how much I love Revco and Front Two for Two and Skinny Puppy and Ministry. I'm not exactly into emo bands. And as I said, I didn't grow up goth. I didn't grow up as a huge Cure fan or whatever, although I'm a Cure fan now. But yeah, sure, music can absolutely, absolutely move me to tears on occasion. I mean, that's why I'm a music fan. You know, I'm I'm looking for that kind of engagement with the, that stuff. That's why I'm listening to it. That's the power of music. You know, sometimes I could be just driving down the road and listening to something and I just feel it so deep. It just takes me out of my head into a whole other space entirely. I mean, I hope everyone's had that experience from time to time. And it always feels good when that happens, even if it's a sad song or whatever, even like all my little words, which is tremendously sad. It's like a release, it's cathartic. And that feeling, you know, is one of the reasons why I'm doing this show to hopefully communicate some of that uh, to you all and to lead you to it, you know, to share that experience. And, You know, as Merritt himself says in the Book of Love, uh, again, quoting, the Book of Love has music in it. In fact, that's where music comes from. Some of it is just transcendental. Some of it's just really dumb. Very wise. You know, so I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. If music didn't move you, you wouldn't be listening to me go on and on about it right now. So cheers. Uh, Another song here that really caught my ear early on, was A Long Forgotten Fairy Tale, since it's the most synth-poppy one here. It has this really groovy beat and bass line with some really clever lyrics, of course. And it really opened my eyes to what this band was doing. It it didn't seem to fit with all the other songs I had heard, but then as I listened more and more, I realized he really did cover just about every style on this record. This is insane. Uh, I mean, New Order could write a song that sounded like this instrumentally, But, you know, New Order has some pretty crap lyrics by comparison. They're nearly meaningless, let's just admit it. So, uh, speaking of, another great song here is Meaningless, which dwells on, at length, all the ways that the singer's former relationship had no bearing on anything. Uh, (laughs) It might be the album's sarcastic peak, which is a plus for me. And it was clearly a songwriting exercise, coming up with all the different ways that this relationship was completely meaningless and in the end he kind of iterates through them all and I think he in the booklet he explained that he intended it to have a line for every letter in the alphabet but he just couldn't think of (laughs) all the descriptions for every letter in the alphabet so it's a little shorter but when I listen to this song I just sort of picture Merritt driving a car And just throwing treasured mementos out on the highway where they're getting smashed or like run over by other cars. And I have no idea why that jumps into my head. I guess some of these songs, the lyrics are are so good that they just like conjure images in my mind. Uh, Plus, this song has my favorite middle eight of any of these songs. And the lyrics go as follows. And if, sorry, let me, let me do that again. And if some dim bulb should say we were in love in some way, kick all his teeth in for me. And if you feel like keeping on kicking, feel free. <laughs> that's just, not, that's, uh, I just love it. that. It's an example of his very dry wit. And in my opinion, dry humor is by far the best humor. Um, I like the song Reno Dakota. It's great if for only this bit. You know you enthrall me, and yet you don't call me. It's making me blue, Pantone 292. (laughs) Now that's a pretty deep reference, and any graphic designer will tell you that Pantone 292 is a very specific shade of blue. And you know Ozzy isn't working Pantone references into his songs, so we're on a whole other level here. And this album is full of little surprises like that. I also love the song Epitaph for My Heart, which starts by reading the caution warning that's normally found on electrical devices that tells you not to open the device, and kind of making a parallel to that, to having a broken heart. Amazingly well done. Uh, But the actual music is amazing as well. Just the instrumentation, the vocals, everything. It's just so bleak. I mean, maybe only Robert Smith himself could write a song this bleak. It has beautiful acoustic guitar throughout and merits deep vocals, just amazing hooks. It's a real treat for the ears. Um, a lot of these songs are incredibly dark, so consider I Think I Need a New Heart, which starts off really jauntily, but soon enough you realize the lyrics are downright psychotic and sad, and it's just an amazing juxtaposition. It has the happiest, bounciest backing track, and the singer is singing stuff like this the words you need to hear you will never hear from me I'll never say happy anniversary I'll never stay to say happy anniversary I mean that's pretty mean (laughs) but it gets even worse with a song like yeah oh yeah which is this duet between Merritt and Claudia with Claudia playing the part of the wife who the husband's about to murder (laughs) I mean that's worthy of being on a Nick Cave album. Um, What else? So there's a lot of masterpieces here, and if I talked about them all, this show would be about two hours long. Uh, Acoustic Guitar is an absolute classic, with John Woo's beautiful playing and Claudia's vocals, which are an appeal to the singer's guitar to help bring back her girlfriend. And I should say that Merritt, being gay, wrote many of these songs from gay perspectives, or at least perspectives where it's not clear that the singer is straight, and that's just fine with me. That's this is one such case on this song. And hey, it's Pride Month, so let's enjoy it. Um I also love that this song references Charo and Guar in the same line. <laughs> it's just outstanding. You know, a little humor to sweeten the otherwise overwhelming bitterness here. Like a good cup of coffee, you know, with a sugar cube. And then there's Washington, D.C., which is this sort of like cheerleader cheer mixed with some interesting facts about the nation's capital, all of which are irrelevant because the singer explains he simply loves the city because that's where uh, the singer's girlfriend lives, you know. So a cool tune. Uh, There are a few songs that tell stories in a very brief amount of time, like abigail bell of kilronin and the night you can't remember a few of the songs are just straight up genre pastiches like punk rock love experimental music love and world love again his goal was to represent love songs in many different styles uh, but i have to talk about this last one here one of the last ones uh, it's one of my favorites the death of ferdinand de Saussure. first because its baseline is so awesome The whole song is just a single two-bar pattern that just repeats over and over so it's a loop song but it works really well it's fantastic and second because it references this obscure swiss linguist ferdinand de saussure and talks about his opinions on love which as far as i can tell are just fictional for this this song and third because it contrasts his opinions with the much more simplistic view of love found commonly in popular music so at the risk of spoiling the song, the idea is that the narrator is listening to De-, De Socher complain about how love is so complicated. And then he shoots him saying, this is for Holland Dozier Holland, which of course was the famous production team behind Motown. <laughs> so that's just brilliant songwriting there. I mean, that could practically be a scene in a movie. Um, and it's an example of Merritt's creative Imagination uh, and how articulate he is, the depths of his references. There, I think there's actually a 69 Love Songs wiki that essentially annotates this entire album, explaining everything. So there's a lot to dig into and uncover. It's a you know real rabbit hole. Um, no one can ever love you is a cool tune because it's sort of a conscious send up of classic Fleetwood Mac. Uh, Shirley Sims is doing her best Stevie Nicks impression while the band lays down this like sweet West Coast laid back kind of vibe. And it it sounds like it could have been an outtake from Tango in the Night. Um, Other favorites in no particular order. I love Absolutely Cuckoo, When My Boy Walks Down the Street, Underwear, of course, Uh, Time Enough for Rocking When We're Old, A Chicken With Its Head Cut Off, and of course, Let's Pretend We're Bunny Rabbits. And As I said, uh, art-wise, it's kind of a bummer because I'm missing the actual box and booklet that these came in. Um, These discs do show pictures of Stephen Merritt. There's Stephen. They kind of put the 69 sticker in this edition. Anyway, it's just a sticker that's like on the jewel box. I don't think it's actually screen printed. And here's Sam Duvall playing the cello. can't actually see very well here and here's Claudia Gonson and I'm pretty sure that they had a picture of John Woo in the booklet that I don't have but you know they'd go on to use this general format for their next few albums with the band name kind of in the margin I think most of their albums after this would kind of follow that format so why do I love it um This album is a landmark. Like I said, it's a tour de force of songwriting. It's worth having if you enjoy great songs or you have any interest in writing songs. If you're interested in that craft of writing songs, there's a lot you can learn here. It's hard to believe that any one person could have come up with all of these songs, as varied as they are. You know, the lyrics really pack a punch with very few well-chosen words, and they make you realize how vapid lyrics usually are in other music. Merritt just has a way with words. He's intelligent, funny, and it shines through these songs. But these songs, like I said, they also have an edge. They come across as dark and sarcastic. You know, there's a lot of um, pain in here, you know, emotional suffering that people go through because it's love, right? And what humors here is understated and dry, and it kind of serves that darkness and sarcasm. And some of the songs are overtly upbeat, even the lyrics, but there aren't many. So one of those is the luckiest guy in the Lower East Side. So some songs are are on here are pretty upbeat. Um, I like that so many of these songs just seem dashed off. Uh, as someone who does mess around with writing and recording songs, I find it inspirational to see that you can have a real impact without being produced by Flood or Martin Hannett or Alan Mulder or Steve Albini or Bob Clear Mountain. So this album reminds us that a good song is powerful because it's a good song at its core, not because of a great production. So the actual words and chords and rhythm and melodies are what make it powerful it's that emotional resonance that it has with the listener so there are plenty of terrible songs that have great production like everything Def Leppard ever made for instance and this is not that Uh, not that the production on this album is bad because it's not but it's certainly not overproduced um you know Nearly every song packs a wallop or is an eye opener in some way, and it's not just his great lyrics. He has an ear for melodies too, arrangements. Uh, This album's just packed with hooks. There's a lot going on, and as I said before, he's a prolific songwriter. Works with many bands. This may not be his best work of his the best work of his career. Pardon me, but it is it is that tour de force, you know, in the same way that a military parade is a tour de force. Literally, it means, you know, it's designed to impress and overwhelm. And that is something this album does just for sheer scope, both breadth in the number of songs and the depth of those songs. It's really a jaw-dropping masterpiece and well worth your time. And personally, I especially love his mix of darkness and humor it's something he does really well sort of like a great you know sweet and sour dish or like putting your salt in your chocolate dessert uh, one balances out the other and just ends up leaving you feeling full you know I don't know how else to describe it is every song on this album a winner uh, of course not there's some filler here and there for sure but in my opinion there's probably one disc of stuff I don't especially love, but is still pretty good. Um, There's another disc of stuff that would kind of makes me think, wow, this is really good. And there's that third disc of stuff that just blows the roof off. So on average, in my opinion, this entire album is excellent. It's, It's an excellent album. So where are they now? Well, the magnetic fields are still around, still doing it. They have 12 studio albums. The most recent came out in 2020. Uh, 69 Love Songs was their sixth album. And the next three albums were the so-called Synthless Trilogy. Uh, No synthesizers. So the first was an album called I, in which each of the songs began with the word I. Then there was Distortion, which is pretty much what you'd think. And then there was Realism, which had a much simpler kind of folky production to it. And then they revisited synths with Love at the Bottom of the Sea. And for me, the standout track on that album was a little tune called Andrew in Drag. And, uh, you know, it caught some press when it came out. I remember hearing about it on NPR. They did, like, a little piece about it. And the premise of the song is that the singer is a straight guy who falls in love with his straight buddy one night when his buddy dresses in drag as a joke. (laughs) So he only falls in love with his buddy in drag and it's a tragic story because the person he loves doesn't really exist it was just Andrew in drag I mean think about that that's a brilliant nugget of a story there's a lot to unpack there and I would be stunned stunned if this isn't being made into a Hollywood movie right now starring Michael Fassbender as Andrew and Ryan Reynolds as his friend I mean (laughs) you have to admit it's much more compelling of a premise than, hey, suddenly the Beatles didn't exist and they made a damn movie about that. Um, But anyway, Merritt revisited his whole song review idea in 2017 with another album called 50 Song Memoir. And that's an album that had 50 songs, one for each of the first 50 years of his life. And their most recent album is called Quickies, which is aptly named since it has 28 songs in just 48 minutes. Again, you know, I recommend checking out the documentary Strange Powers to see more about the various band members. Uh, by the way, Strange Powers is itself is a catchy little pop song from their fourth album, Holiday. I just love that song. Check out that song. It plays over the end credits in the documentary. Um in general, interviews with Stephen are always entertaining, kind of in the same way that interviews with Frank Zappa are always entertaining because they're both very smart and witty, very quick. And they both come across as unique individuals who have a lot of confidence and who have a strong sense of self. Um, for an example of that, you might want to check out the episode of NPR's Project Song featuring Stephen Merritt, and maybe I'll dump a link to that in the description here. In that episode, the folks at NPR tasked Stephen with writing a song in 48 hours, which he does to tremendous effect, and it's pretty amazing watching his creative process. Since his normal writing method involved sitting in a gay bar, listening to disco music, and sipping cognac, he had them construct a, or bring a bar into the studio. And that's not unlike the legend of, you know, Simpsons writer John Schwarzwalder doing all of his writing in a coffee shop. And then whenever they passed the anti-smoking law, he brought the coffee shop booth and installed it into his house so he can continue smoking and writing. I mean, <laughs> whatever works, right? You stick with it. Anyway, uh, it's really sweet to watch and give some insight into uh, how he works. So I should also point out that in the past, the band toured the album 69 Love Songs and pretty much performed the whole thing each night, which must have been just amazing. They had all the guest vocalists present at the time. And you can see some of those performances online. And it's one of my regrets that I didn't have my head on straight to catch them doing this. I don't, you know, there was a time in my life where I just uh, wasn't thinking about live music at all. It was like, couldn't have been further from my mind. And I missed a lot of great shows. Fortunately, they just announced that they'll be touring it again in 2024 for the album's 25th anniversary. Unfortunately, they're only playing a smattering of dates far from me. So (laughs) they're playing New York City, Chicago, Boston, L.A., and San Francisco. But I'm thinking some travel might be in order here, because this, you know, like Seeing the Cure, this is another one of those once-in-a-lifetime dealies for me. It's one of these things that you just have to find a way to make it happen. But there you have it, kids. Another band I love, The Magnetic Fields, and their iconic classic album, 69 Love Songs. It's unlike anything else out there. If you love good songs and good songwriting, I urge you to check it out. And give Stephen Merritt's other bands a spin. Again, the Gothic Archies, the Sixths, and my favorite, the Future Bible Heroes. They're all fantastic. I think Stephen Merritt's a national treasure. I think we should appreciate him while we can and you know, send some love his way. You know, if there were any justice in this world, he'd be a lot more famous than he is. But maybe it's best he isn't that famous because he'd probably hate it. But that's all for now. Tune in next time when I may or may not talk about They Might Be Giants or Sharo or Guar. This was Stronger Than Reason. Listen on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. I am not sponsored by anyone. I am not an influencer. I'm just one guy throwing it out there for the hell of it. And I thank you for listening. Live laugh love like and subscribe subscribe, subscribe. stay strong